0: One, people will say like, well, I got to sw- fix my swing fall first before I start training speed. That is backwards. Like you need to do speed and mechanics at the same time because under the gun, your body's going to want to go to the fastest pattern it can to produce speed and hit a good shot. This is The Tournament Code.
1: We appreciate you taking the time to join us today, Luke. We know a little bit about your background. We're going to talk about the Ripstick today, listen to you on some other podcasts, talking about practice, and there's some stuff Cooper wants to talk about, I know, regarding a chart you have. But before we get there, let's just start at the beginning. What got you into the game of golf?
0: Yeah, so my grandpa got me in. My parents really didn't play. I think I was around 12 when I first maybe played. I played a lot of a lot of other sports growing up, loved just playing with balls, you know, like in a baseball around, and, and, uh, it didn't matter basketball. I was totally into just playing sports. So my grandpa got me out on the golf course and I probably shot up 75 for nine holes. My first time I just had a pretty good knack for hitting the ball solid. Cause I played so much baseball, um, but no control. And then, uh, I remember finishing, I was like, yeah, this is kind of fun. And then, uh, my grandpa got me a, a membership at the at the golf course near my house the next summer. And I played probably 259 whole rounds. I mean, I was out there all the time. So it took me about a year to break 80 from the first time I picked up a club. And so by the end of that summer where I was breaking 80, I looked at the scores in the newspaper and the high school golf team. They're like, wow, they're shooting 78. I can shoot 78. I'm a 13-year-old kid playing for one year. Never Never had any lessons or anything. My grandpa taught me how to curve it both ways. He taught me how to hook it and slice it. He says, If you can hook it and you can slice it, you figure out, you know, the rest of your life how to hit it straight. So I had no idea how steep I was with my golf swing. It was horrific, but I could curve it really well both ways and I could hit around trees. And I thought, you know, the, the nature of golf was to curve it as much as possible and make it fun. So anyway, I was like, uh, I'm going to try to get good at this game. And what I didn't realize with comparing the scores, of the high school kids to my scores, was they were playing on, you know, 6,500 yard courses and I was playing on a, Twenty-two hundred yard par par well it was a par thirty-four right. So I wasn't really sure what I was doing, but I thought, "Damn, I'm going to get good at this thing." So anyway, that got me going, and then, you know, next year I played high school golf, and and uh, within a couple of years, I got pretty good. And consistently, you know, people people will probably agree you just have to get totally hooked and fall in love with the game, and I did. You know, I basically played two and a rounds a year for ten years. And that's, that's how it got good, you know, so I was probably breaking, breaking par within three years or two years of playing and, um, you know, got just, just absolutely into the scoring part. But what I never had was a whole lot of instruction. So that kind of led me to understand I needed to probably build a better golf swing, read a lot of books about it, really no, I had no lessons until I really turned pro. So late starter.
2: So as we know, you went on, you played college golf and you ended up getting a PhD in motor learning so for the listeners what is motor learning and how did this help you when you became a golf instructor
0: yeah so motor learning is basically how do we learn motor skills and you could go more of like a you know occupational therapy or a pt route or you could go more into like you know sports and really playing playing golf at a high level and and as i started thinking about it and graduating college. And I was like, man, I'm going to go get a degree in finance. Seems like a good backup to professional golf. So that's where I started with um, an undergrad and then played professional golf. And then I was like, man, I, I think teaching's my obvious route at that point. And I started thinking what sort of educational background would make me the best teacher. And it came down to three disciplines that you could consider, which would be one psychology, two is biomechanics, and three is motor learning. But I figure, what are you spending most of the time doing in a lesson? You're teaching motor learning, right? So you have essentially like one overarching thing that probably should dominate all the instruction, and everything else is built underneath that, in my opinion. So that's kind of where I devoted my energy, and I was like, "Man, I want to I want to find ways to make people learn this game faster." Like a lot of the methods, the anecdotes from you know back when Harvey Penix Day, like some of those are great, some of those are not. Like there's so many things that we don't understand, and uh, so that's really what, where I wanted to devote my energy.
1: How'd you end up developing? a coaching base, a coaching clientele, and tell us a little bit about your journey as a coach.
0: I knew teaching was my route at the time I stopped playing. And, you know, wanting to fix my own swing, it's kinda like, you know, why do you become a psychologist? Because you got some interesting ideas in your head sometimes, right? Well, why did I want to learn how to swing better? Because I had a pretty terrible golf swing. So some of it was my own sort of desire to improve my golf game and just know more about it. And then the other part was I just I like helping people. And so I started building my business, got into teaching a lot of junior golf at a place called Cleary Lake in, uh, in Prior Lake, Minnesota, and just got my feet wet with it. Realized that there was so much that I didn't know. And I think a lot of good instructors will probably agree. The first two years of your teaching, you probably should give a lot of free lessons, you know, and and I did like when, when I felt like I didn't help somebody, I'd say, all right, this lesson's on me. You know, like I always, I always took ownership, but I didn't really help them. You know, like I think that's important to do. But then as you get into it and you go research you learn tpi you learn a little more about how the body works and then i started doing more formal education motor learning and understanding you know really really kind of shortcuts to getting stuff faster and and understanding how to push people way harder than they understood that they could learn then i started seeing much better results and i started to build a good group of uh, junior golfers and now i've been teaching Long enough where it's starting to see like a lot of the kids I started coaching when they're even five, six, seven, I still coach and they're 21, 22. And it's really cool. Uh, I've got probably five of them that I've coached for 15 plus years. And they're all, you know, college level players or graduated college at this point. And so that helps obviously fuel the pipeline of more students and build that niche.
1: We talked recently with Tony Ruggiero about coaching. And one of the things that he believed was as a coach, you got to at least your goal should be able to be able to get people to the next step. So take the five-year-old who's just getting into the game of golf and help them get functional. And then if they want to play junior golf, then help them with that. And then be able to help get them to college if they want. And then be able to help them get to afterwards. Tell us about what it's been like working with students for that period of time and what you've noticed as far as helping them get to those next levels.
0: I think the biggest thing is you have to understand your role as a teacher is to push the student to make them aggressively per- pursue their goals and be accountable to their goals. Those can be process goals at age five. Be like, all right, I want you to go hit ten drivers, ten pitching wedges, ten seven irons, and then go putt for ten minutes with your parent three days a week, and then I'll see you next week. Right? For a college kid, it can be you need to put on ten miles per hour club head speed in the next you know year and a half, and we need to putt at a strokes gain level at so and so and you gotta develop the drills to do it. But I think um a complete coach can find players that have all these different sort of abilities and different uh backgrounds and push them to the next elevation of their game and finding working on the margins, you know, like a, a good coach in any sport will say, Okay, so your driving may be bad, your putting may be bad, but where is our, our best use of your time? You know, it's not like we always have to look at what's worst in your game and go improve it. It's actually find the margin where we can improve your score the best, and that's not always the same thing. So, being a holistic uh, coach and finding obviously like the the physical side, which I'm very interested in, the biomechanics to make the swing more consistent, and then also the skill side, and that's really where you know as we get into the bottle, finding the margins of skill and mechanics and, and. I'm so lucky to coach in Minnesota because in Minnesota, we have this very long downtime. I have four or five months where I just destroy swings. I take them apart. I'll have kids not hit balls, actual golf balls for three, four weeks at a time. We do foam balls all all of October, November, and by December, they're flushing it, you know, and we change the pattern. So it's it's a beauty that we have this, and I think that's really informed my coaching methodology is that I'm not afraid to tear somebody apart and, and really change some big time patterns. And I'm also like pretty aware, like in the summer when we're trying to play tournament golf, like we're not going to introduce new swing thoughts. We're going to keep it really simple. So working both ends of the spectrum, I think is what's really key.
1: What you mentioned right there, as far as figuring out where to attack is part of the reason why we started this podcast, both Cooper and I have done a lot of learning. And as it is in almost every case where you do learning, you end up going down a lot of wrong roads or thinking a lot of wrong things, and Uh, then you have to work your way back. And then once you start to get to first principles and understand first principles of whatever you're trying to solve, it becomes a lot easier to actually solve that problem. Talking about the chart, and Cooper, if you want to pull that up here, uh, for those who are watching at home, pulling up the chart, as far as what it takes to improve from level to level, tell us a little bit about that progression.
0: Yeah, I think the the biggest idea, and it's not... You know, I I don't think what I'm showing you here is is um, is rocket science. I think good coaches have done this. I just don't think anybody's explained it well in terms of understanding how to leverage mechanics and skill differently. So we have basic concepts, um, which I think most most people that understand motor learning would agree is that you can make a a task much more difficult in certain ways. You can add difficulty by adding variability, adding pressure, adding complexity to it which might be more, more body parts or more, more demands of the task. There's so many ways to make a task harder, okay? And then there's ways to make it uh, obviously a lot easier by minimizing degrees of freedom or amount of movements, putting people in a very controlled environment where nothing changes and having no pressure. So there's all ways to essentially leverage it. And so what I've done with this model is basically say, well, if you're going to do mechanics at a high level, Like, Dan, let's say, let's say we're trying to remodel your golf swing as a guy that's coming back as a 12 handicap and your golf swing is, has 19 things wrong with it. Okay. And we want to fix those things. I could say, Dan, all right, I want you to fix one thing at a time. And I also want you to hit a couple of good shots while you do it. So we're going to work on trying to get your left wrist flat because maybe that's the one that, you know, was hard to do. Okay. We can do that. And if we're trying to solve a bias and we're trying to play that may be the right path. But if we're trying to do 19 things at the same time, I'm going to do 19 of the same things at the at the same time. I'm going to have you understand in depth all those 19 things. And I'm going to have you think about all those 19 things, but I'm not going to have you try to hit any good shots. So we're going to use foam balls. We're going to use you know, a backyard net, and we're going to use video. And we're going to use a ton of freezers, and we're going to develop that move from the top down. Back swings to me are, are a almost a total waste of time when you're learning how to swing. Like if you are an adult and you are trying to remodel your golf swing, stop worrying about your backswing. Learn how to do a downswing properly with great sequence, great face control, great shaft lane, great, great swing plane, and we can throw a backswing on later. And so that's kind of how I do it. And I, I, I started doing it more when I coached online. When I started doing – there was two, two kind of fundamental things that got me into this model. Number one is I taught a whole bunch of university students how to golf. I get 20 kids at a time and I had, I had basically like 10 weeks to teach them an unbelievable golf swing. And uh, instead of trying to like coddle them in terms of like understanding all the rules and stuff, like we did a little bit of time on like the basics of golf. That's cool. But like I took it as challenge to try to help them build unbelievable golf swings in 10 weeks. And so I'd get about 16 hours of instruction to do this. We had to do a little short game and putting, but on the range we would do so many swings without a golf ball. And it was so many freezers. And when I started using freezers and teach them how to really use the ground, rotate their body, shallow the plane, all these things without a ball, I got unbelievable results. So it changed how I taught because previous to that, I was chasing ball flight. Like I wanted people to hit it better. So to me, it's kind of three steps. One is understand the biomechanics you need to impart to be pretty consistent with your golf swing. Number two is learn how to dial bias, and and that can also include. Like you know path face contact stuff, be like all right, keep the path around zero, make sure the face is relatively square, and then hit it in the middle of the face. Those would be three skills that kind of are in the middle of this graph, you know, and then the last piece is transfer training or taking it to tournament golf, which is what you guys obviously spend so much time talking about and teaching people how to understand that you you need to to master exactly where you're at in your process. if you're rebuilding, we're going to think about a lot, but we're not going to care where the golf ball goes. If we're going to go play tournament golf, we're going to keep it so simple that it's basically uh, – I really focus with my players on like going out there with an attitude of gratitude and and basically seeing shots, external targets. Keep it really simple, see the shot, hit the shot. And if you train properly, you can trust your body to do that. If you don't train properly and you're not in the right mindset, you end up having a lot of internal, internal cues and a lot of self-doubt, and it's hard to play competitive golf.
1: One of the things that you mentioned right there was – don't worry about your backswing. And I think something that most people listening to this probably have heard is the exact opposite. And so I'd love for you to dive in deeper and people would say, Hey, the backswing sets up the downswing. It's the piece that you move the slowest. And it, the rest is essentially a reaction to try to square up where you were in the backswing is what somebody might say to that. So if you wouldn't mind dive in deeper into that statement and tell us why and tell us a little bit more about why you're saying what you're saying
0: first of all i think backswings are easy i really do think they're pretty easy to get in the right plane if i put a pool noodle there dan and you got to go over the pool noodle hit the ball you'll do it you know the reason that i think backswings are hard for people is because they don't know how to transition the club and do the other stuff right so if you can get a backswing that's up in front is there an advantage to that possibly for a lot of golfers versus ripping it inside Probably. I'm not saying backswings don't matter. I'm just saying they're very overrated. Does Bobby Jones have a chance to win a Grand Slam with the backswing that's ridiculously inside? Sure, you can. Can Matthew Fitzpatrick actually play better ripping it inside? Because he actually improved his, his ball striking and his swing when he started pulling more inside. You know, this whole geometry based idea of having your backswing and your downswing matching, I mean, it's such BS, isn't it? You don't have to have a match. You have to have a transition that puts the club in a great spot. I think if you're a bad pitcher of the ball, if you can't hit a 30-yard pitch because your backswing is so pulled inside and you don't have time to reroute it, that can be a problem. But on a full swing driver, to roll it inside and come down on a really good plane, it's really totally doable. That being said, do I have a slight preference for getting that club a little bit more over the hands and a little bit more up in front of you? Sure. Does the center of mass getting up in front of you maybe improve your chances to shallow it long-term? Possibly. Does it Does it really matter for most ga- golf average golfers trying to break 70 or 80 even? Like, no, not really.
1: Very interesting. One thing I wanted to make sure we talk about, and we got plenty of time to talk about it, but... I want to talk about the ripstick because frankly I Cooper and I are mainly me, I guess, are connoisseurs of random golf things. Uh, and we buy, and by we I mean me and I buy all sorts of random golf things, but the ripstick is something that somehow missed my radar uh significantly. I've owned super speed sticks, I own the stack, I have all other sorts of Dumb things that sometimes get collected and I try not to uh even do that. It just stuff stuff accumulates. Tell us about the invention of the ripstick and how everything around it, how it came about and what you see in it.
0: Yeah, so ripstick really came because I was teaching a lot of junior golf in Minnesota. Speed is obviously our, our one of our big focuses in the winter. And adults too want to pick up speed so we have this great opportunity and the research out there on kind of over speed training is clear you know you see it in other sports too you see track athletes running downhill using parachutes to kind of run uphill basically slow down so training at both ends of the speed kind of velocity spectrum is really key you got to go fast you got to go hard you got to understand both of them and training both makes you stronger and faster than you would just swing at one weight so you'll see that with pretty much every long drive athlete and now it's becoming pretty commonplace for PGA Tour players, particularly in the off season, but almost in the in the middle of season as well, right? So using Super Speed, which is a great product, you know, I, I found great benefit from it with the kids I was coaching, and I was like, wow, we should just make a simpler mousetrap here. Like, let's just have one stick that can fit in the bag. So we created the Rip Stick, and now we have tungsten weights, we have um, aluminum weights, and steel weights, so you can basically get you know. Hundreds of different combinations of weights. If you want to, got a counterweight cap which helps with balancing it out. If you don't have that and you're swinging something with a lot of weight on the end, it really, really, really torques a lot. And also, it is you know 45 inches, and we make a 40, 48 inch model for long drive guys too, which I think is really key to understand that you know the club that matters the most to swing fastest is driver, and that's the one that you know most people should be training with for speed. So that and then also what we do i think that's a little differently is as i started getting into speed development i really wanted to make sure that people could develop swings that would uh, be fast but also efficient so a lot of our plans are really built on efficiency and correcting swing flaws as well so if you're a slicer and you do our slice protocol and you do that for two weeks and you're still slicing it i'll give your money back like i guarantee you'll fix your slice same thing for a hook plan if you're early extending if you tend to you know Up the goat and you're jumping out of your posture. Like we got a plan for that too. So it's a good way to work on swing flaws. And a lot of people will say, there's kind of two ways. One one people will say like, well, I got to fix my swing fall first before I start training speed. That is backwards. Like you need to do speed and mechanics at the same time because under the gun, your body's going to want to go to the fastest pattern it can to produce speed and hit a good shot. Your body's not going to want to go do a bifurcated pattern that's slow and perfect at slow motion speed and then go fast where you feel better with raising your elbow above your above your shoulder, like you're not gonna want to do that. So once you train speed and mechanics at the same time. So that's one. And then the other one that I that I occasionally hear from people is the idea that you you really you can't do this while you're playing competitive golf. But I think you really can. Like if you're wise about it and you do it uh you know, on days where you're not going to be totally taxed, like you can do this and you probably should do it year round, you know, one or two days a week during your competitive season, will maintain your speed and you get to the next off season, keep pushing the limits uh, and you can get faster.
1: When it comes to comparing it, I'm going to ask specifically, and it's no knock on any product or anything like that. If you would tell me, so we've had Sasha on, as you know, we've had on Marty, as you know, we like the stack. I've used the stack, as I said, just give us the specific differences. Like something you mentioned there, that the your product is forty five inches. There's, I think, is like forty one inches or forty inches in the length of a hybrid. Tell us some of the specifics that differentiate your product. And you know, every every person, uh, every engineer, designer, etc., is trying to solve maybe a different problem or going about it solving a problem in a different way. So the differences aren't necessarily. Bad. They might even might even be intentional between you guys as far as what, where your products differ differ. Tell us a little bit about the differences between that and the stack end. What benefits you attribute to maybe your differences?
0: Yeah, so a different length, right? I mean, I think I think a driver length is better. You know, I I don't know. If that's, you know, a total game changer, like if you go a little shorter, like I'd I'd rather have something longer. But, you know, Stacks a great product, without a doubt. I think what we have is we have all – we have the counterweight, which is great, which is really awesome. And I think our app is is really, really, really good. And we customize it as well. And I think the advantage I have is kind of somebody who has been teaching golf, I've taught 20,000-plus lessons – And I really specialize on teaching people how to change swing flaws while they gain speed, because it's not just about hitting it a mile, hitting it a mile into the trees doesn't help. So again, like all that kind of background goes into the plans. And we've got now we've got AI working in our app, which will help you kind of dial in your specific swing plan. And it'll it'll basically be very customized to what you need to do. And I think that's so key because your plan shouldn't feel like everybody else's plan. If it feels like everybody else's plan, you're probably training the wrong way. So I think that's a big advantage. And I also think like my background teaching is like, I really want to fix kinematic swing flaws you may have. So let's say your ground force reaction isn't there. Like we've got specific plans to work on that. Like if you don't know how to load down to the ground and then push out of your lead leg and straighten your lead leg, like let's break that down as part of your plan. So I think that's really, really key to A you're basically fixing swing faults. And two, you're like plugging power leaks, specific power leaks, which are are good advantages to gaining speed. Because there's one part that is like, okay, if if you ask your body to swing as fast as you can over and over, will it get faster and faster and faster? Yes. But when you talk to the world-long drive champs, the guys like Seb Twaddell, who swings 169 miles per hour, he's super technical about how he swings. It's not just swing as hard as you can. For him, it's creating width and some flexion at the top of his swing. It's maintaining, you know, really, really fast hips and pushing that lead leg back. And these iterations of swing mechanics that he goes through at a next level that is totally critical to this process of speed. And I think I would say that we probably as a company focus more on those power leaks than the other ones because we're so customized. Anybody that buys a ripstick, they'll get an analysis from me that will point out their power leaks that they should emphasize while they're swinging. And training for speed
2: yeah so you mentioned the fastest long driver in the world focuses on pushing his lead lead back lead leg back that's a move that i've seen taught more and more lately can you go into why that's important and why that helps create speed
0: yeah so you'll see this trend Uh, certainly from the eighties, nineties, you saw more linear, linear trace or kind of weight to the front foot. But then once the weight got to the front foot, you'd see some vertical and tiger prime. I mean, tiger was getting his weight to the front foot. He was starting to push back a little bit more. Um, but then when you start to see the long drive players of today, they look really different than old school PGA pros who were sliding through with all this, what we call linear force, you know, sliding the hips, tilting back reverse C finishes plenty of reverse is going to happen when you start applying force off the lead leg. But in the transition, the weight going towards the lead toe, which allows you to push off the lead toe towards the lead heel and and literally like it feels like a snap or a jump. I don't like saying snap because people start telling me you're going to break my knee. But to almost feel some jump at the end will allow you to rotate your hips even faster. And then you start to see that deceleration cycle, which is so key because the hips and, and chest have to eventually slow down. And it begins with that kind of vertical jump. And that's when you see the hands start to really move. Now, I will say there are some risks in terms of accuracy. The more violent your kinematic sequence is, the less likely are you you, you may be to control your hand speed, meaning the hand speed will probably slow down more. And let the club release harder at the end the more you jump, all things equal. So that's where there's a difference between long drive golf and competitive golf. You don't see the hand speed maybe decelerate quite as hard on competitive golf. Obviously, a guy like Phil Mickelson, you see a lot of it. The hand slow down, face closes a little bit more, face rotation's higher. But you also see some guys that are, you know, a little bit more of uh, kind of block it out there. You know, like the John Rom sort of type, and there's plenty of players like that too where they might not be emphasizing. So I think the mechanics really depend on the person. That's, I think, where we're going. The modern move is to really snap that lead leg, push it back, get that vertical thrust going. But there's a lot of ways to do it aren't there.
1: When it comes to ground forces, I heard you mention on another podcast that you were potentially working on a product. uh, I think the term was a wobble board as to other products. You were potentially working on a product to help people understand ground forces. Because I think that's something that, if you have a coach with you or you have a swing catalyst or something like that you can kind of you can see the ground forces but it's something that needs to be explained well and it's something through 27 years of golf i had well no 27 years of life a little bit less than that of golf uh but through that time in golf i didn't fully understand ground forces still don't but i didn't even understand what my left leg was supposed to be doing until I saw a video of Greg Rose, who we're working on scheduling right now, um, talking about explaining here's how, here's what it should feel like as far as your lead leg. And here's what, here's a move you could practice, which was in a rotational chair, like I'm sitting in my office, pushing back as hard as you can and then trying to make a 180 degree rotation. And when I saw it explained in that context and started trying, I was like, okay that makes more sense than every, every and it, assuming that's correct, it makes way more sense than every other concept I've had with what to do with that left leg. Because at the end of the day, I haven't had an idea of what, how to, what to do with that left leg or what to do with ground forces. Tell us about this potential product and about training ground forces.
0: Yeah, I think that I've seen that video too of Greg Rose. And it's a great example. I use that one in my studio all the time, like teach people how to push back. And it's a wild move. If you've never done that, and you're trying to feel that, I mean, it is, it is mind-blowing, mind right? But that's how you're going to create more rotational force and a little vertical as well, right? So our product is super exciting because you stand on a board and you can dial an amount of force it takes to make the board click by putting pressure into the lead foot. So you could have a 7-year-old a there and you can dial the thing back and if, if the 7-year-old pushes hard off the left foot, it'll click. And once they accomplish that, you can add more pressure and it will go all the way up to a force that would be ideal for, you know, like a, a long drive champ as well. So you can dial the force by turning a dial and then you can learn how to increase your, your amount of force. And it, it's so cool because like the, it's super simple technology. We got a patent on it, but it literally could measure your vertical. If I know how much you weigh, if you weigh 165 pounds and you can make the board click by jumping off of it like a diving board. I can tell you what your vertical is because I can do the the, the calculations of, of mass. It's really simple. So we can teach people how to use both trail and lead leg and maximize force. And you're going to hear the auditory click. And it's been tricky to develop uh, to make the engineering simple enough, but we're almost done. The prototype's looking pretty sweet.
1: That is awesome. That's, super, that's something I think, as I said, I like to check things out. So that's something I will be checking out once you guys release it because as I said, ground ground reaction forces are something that are tough to understand and have people have a hard time figuring out what they're supposed to be getting out of it and as part of again the reason we've ended up on the journey we've been on with this is i could dunk a basketball but my driver's swing speed was 110 miles per hour and i was like there's no way i should be able to create that kind of force and this is where i'm at with drivers so i've worked with some people to help me increase in Cooper. It sounds like you wanted to say something yeah, on that.
2: Deck. Yeah. So that reminded me, cause you talking, talking about, you know, you could dunk a basketball, but you couldn't swing it as fast as you wanted to. I know Luke has, um, you create an algorithm based on different TPI exercises and how far theoretically you should hit the ball. So I'd like you to talk about that some.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's super, uh, uh, appreciate you doing some of the research on it. Yeah. So we just, you know, again, like some of this is borrowed, it's all community and we're trying to use other, other avenues, right? TPI made a, a cool, Analysis of your vertical vertical jump, and you've got your kind of med ball chest pass and your medicine ball overhead pass, and you put those into an algorithm. And uh, we we've added hand strength as well, but it was less predictive than the other three. But you put those three in, and you can predict somebody's uh, cl- max club at speed within within certainly ninety percent. So Dan, like you're a great example. How tall are you? How big are you?
1: I am six three two seventeen.
0: Yeah. So. So if you're, if you're 217, uh, you know, two 6'3", and you can dunk a basketball, you should swing at 120+. plus. And I'm not sure if you're there yet, but this is where the algorithm super help, helpful. And we can find out which ground force you're not using. And it comes down to linear force, rotational force, or vertical force. And we can find the last one could be a little bit of wrist leverage and make sure there's enough radial deviation or wrist cock going on. But we can get you to, you should be able to hit it, you know, 340.
1: I I hope so. Right now I'm stuck for a while. I'm at like, but back when I was saying that I was one I was in the early two hundreds or low two hundreds and I was able to dunk. And then long story short, did a bulk this spring um, or summer and then have been cutting down. But even through all that, my club head speed right now is probably around one one nineteen one twenty cruising. And then I go play with Cooper who. Uh, I have uh, the GC3 and so we pulled him out on that and he's like cruising at 127 and if he goes after it it's 135 and it's exasperating to watch that watch that happen frankly and so I'll throw away my whole golf career in order to because
2: I definitely cannot dunk a (laughs) basketball
1: but and I'm not even saying this to be mean Cooper but like and most like competitions, if we did any competition in a gym or something like that, and most sports, I probably would beat him at it. But he does that and it drives me nuts to watch that in front of me every time. It's impressive. And then, and I know friends who play with him who play professionally see that like, geez, he just hits it a mile and there's nothing you can do about it.
0: Yeah, it's super cool. So, Cooper, what do you think you do well with ground forces? Why are you as long as you are? Given maybe you know not as strong as Dan.
2: I'm really not sure to be honest with you. I did a lot of speed training, just with the club itself and a GC quad a couple summers ago, just swinging as fast as I can. And I do work out regularly, so I would say I'm in pretty good shape. But I'm but I'm not even sure. then, like, back then you weren't
1: in the one tw- you weren't in the you weren't, weren't one twenty seven one thirty five back then
2: yeah i'm I'm really not not sure honestly i just i just work out and swing hard <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's great and, and I would say like you're probably an example of you had some you started golf at a at a young age maybe or or uh did enough sports in your critical period where you developed some pretty good kinematics and then you add strength on top of it and it goes a mile i mean I get these kids that are thirteen and they're skinny I had a kid that was he was uh he was like he was like 95 pounds when he was 12 and his club head speed was like 95. And then the next year he got to 114 and his club head speed was 114. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, because he started to put on enough mass and he was already really, really sequenced well.
2: I, I don't know if this is going to be correct or the right type of thing to think about, but I I always try to focus on like extending my right side on the way back and extending my left side on the, on the way through. I'm talking about my lower body. Um, yeah that's always helped me gain speed.
0: Well, yeah, extending that 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 trail leg, you know, gets your pelvis nice and high so you can probably do a really good job of getting down into the ground in the transition and then extending out of it. So you're probably doing all the things right just with simple cues and that's kind of the magic of when you kind of get in the technical aspects. Some people can just create those speeds with just trying to swing hard. Other people need a lot of coaching to get there. And that's that's where it can be really depend on who the person is and what the swing flaw might look like. Some people just have no ability to develop lag and kind of compression on the golf ball. And that's where like with our ripstick plans, like if you drill it over and over and you learn how to load and rotate because you don't need to jump if you're a caster, we just find the right cues for you and it works.
1: And that's one of the things to put a book into all of it uh, and move on in a second. One of the things that I think Cooper, when I look at his swing, especially with driver, what he does the best is he doesn't have he doesn't have to have a lot of compensations as far. He doesn't have a perfect swing, but doesn't have a lot of compensations in his sequencing in order to square up the club face at the end or something of that nature. It's in a pretty good position at the top and on the way down, he's able to get into that left side and push it, push that leg back very well without having to, have any early extension in order to shallow that face shallow the club out or anything like that. So that's what that's what's been impressive to me moving on from the ripstick and the wildboard, which we're excited to see when that comes out. You talked about foam golf balls in another interview I heard you do and I think that's something for someone like For people like Cooper and I, I don't know if we've ever practiced with foam golf balls. Kentucky has probably a four-month winter season, and I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, so I have a month or two of work where I get super busy. But relatively speaking, golf is always accessible, and hitting foam balls indoors has never been something we've done. Talk to us a little bit about stripping down a golf swing, making those changes, and what foam golf balls bring to the table.
0: Yeah. So it really comes down to our understanding of feedback and the biggest flaw that most people have is they're really attached to what a shot feels like and where the ball goes. So we did a really cool study in my lab here where we had people hitting into, um, into a net without any, any any launch monitor. They didn't know where the where the ball was really going. And we asked them what they felt about it. And over and over, we got this response from people. We got it in different ways, but The nutshell takeaway was when people hit it in the middle of the face, they think they master golf. They think, ooh, I look like Tiger Woods. That was sweet. And it might have been 20 yards right of the the target. They might have been a little inside out with a dead face, dead square face. It felt great because it was middle strike. Middle strike makes you think you're good at golf. It is such a bullshit thing, right? It doesn't really work that way. So... People are chasing the wrong feedback. They're trying to hit it in the middle because they think they're better at golf when they do which is the furthest thing from the truth when you're trying to learn a game like golf. Like you need to develop good biomechanics. You need to develop a great golf swing. Do you need to hit the ball in the middle of the face today? No, you do not. You can hit a lot of shots at the foam ball. And the beautiful thing about a foam ball is I can get these people that are so kind of fixated on the impact feel that they've been chasing to measure their success wrongly. And I get, the, get them focused on mechanics and I can get the video out and I, they can hit 25 shanks in a row. And uh, I'm not concerned because the biomechanics are great. And then I'll, I'll take the video back and I'll, I'll, I'll show them, oh, you shanked the last 20. Now let's try to hit the toe and do the same thing. But there's no way that they would go ahead and hit 25 bad shots off the hosel and continue doing the same pattern I'm asking them to do. So they have it backwards in terms of their feedback cycle. And once you correct that cycle of understanding, okay, impact doesn't matter at first. We're just going to take care of biomechanics. We're going to make sure your swing is awesome. Then we're going to start dialing bias. And then you're going to start to hit it not only in the middle, but also relatively straight because your biomechanics are so much better.
1: If I'm someone listening to this, probably one of the, especially considering some of the past guests we've had on who focus more on what would be called skill-based learning. And a lot of them are good self-taught golfers or something of that nature. And those, that type of instruction revolves more around. And I'm not saying you're not proposing this, but a lot of that revolves less around biomechanics. And uh, when we look look on your scale of practicing, a lot of that revolves a lot more around variability or what people might call skill acquisition. And so they would try to get you to hit center shots, but they might, you know, uh, to improve biomechanics, they might have an external. They might have an external factor that's involved as opposed to an internal thought. Tell us about the quality and the use of external versus internal uh, cues and why it makes sense in this case uh, to focus on biomechanics as opposed to focusing on what people might call skill acquisition, which, as I said, don't I don't think they're mutually exclusive.
0: Yeah. Okay. You guys are, this is great. I mean, in a nutshell, I would say you have to understand both skill acquisition and biomechanics, and you have to prioritize which one you're focusing on, which is my entire chart. It's my teaching philosophy. So in a given lesson, I may hyper-focus on mechanics. And again, I might say, all right, we're going to hit foam balls over and over. I don't really care where you hit it on the face. But I may say, all right, now you're actually making the pattern look really good. We're 85, 90% of the way there with mechanics, now I actually want you to start solving bias, which is very much built on external cues generally to do it. So that means, okay, if you've shanked three in a row, let's try to hit the toe. Let me uh, put your cell phone right outside the ball so you don't uh, don't hit it off the, uh, off the heel anymore, right? So simple external cues are almost always going to win in terms of getting the single performance goal there. But I'm going to say something controversial here, which not every teaching pro or more learning person will agree with. Okay. But uh, my area of dissertation was on internal and external cues. And I think it's most of it is hogwash. And the reason it is, is because so many of the studies were one to three days in length. So the research says that internal cues really aren't that useful. Research looks at one to three day studies. So if I'm trying to teach Dan how to move really fast should I just be using external cues to do it? Is it okay to use internal cues if I'm working with him for three or four months in the winter and I'm seeing him every week and I'm teaching him how to move his body and feel his left hip push back? I don't mind using external cues, but to say that internal cues aren't useful is totally missing the point and the research really messed up because I think we're we're measuring the wrong thing. You know, I think I think the outcome of the shot is not that important. Case in point would be Ben Hogan. I mean, what's the most important golf tip of all time. Ben Hogan's secret. What was Ben Hogan's secret? It was cupping the left wrist. Did he care about the external cue associated? Nope. So if you're telling me that external cues are always the best way, you haven't looked at the most famous golf tip of all time. And you haven't really looked at studies that are more than one to three days. So the research I did was a six-week study. We looked at different cues. And I found that over time, internal cues can be very effective. Once they're in a state of automaticity where they produce similar patterns and they don't take as much mental load, because the problem with an internal cue is it basically is a dual task. Like if I say, Dan, I want you to go chip this close to the hole. Okay. You got to hit a good shot, but you also have to think about having your left wrist really flat as you come through the ball, your contact gets worse. So when I go measure that on a one or three day study, you're going to perform poorly. There's no doubt about it. Now, if I have you do that same cue for six weeks, which is what I did, and have you focus on that flat left wrist coming through so that you had nice ball first contact, eventually you would learn how to hit the ball with a higher level of automaticity, i.e. lower mental load, and you could perform both actions reasonably well. But I would want you to actually perform with an external focus. I wouldn't want you thinking about the wrist, but I want you I want you training, thinking about the wrist. And so I think that's the big difference of breaking down biomechanics per f- versus like training for performance.
2: So we've spent a lot of time talking about the golf swing and biomechanics, but I know that you teach all facets of of golf. And there was a story I heard you tell when you taught some in the Himalayas about a realization that you had about putting, I'd like you did talk about that briefly.
0: Yeah, sure. So this goes right into like the other side of the spectrum. Because um, I think I think putting is really, 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 really non-technical. I think some great putting coaches know the technical. And I think the technical matters a little bit. But I think it's really, really, really overrated. Uh, so this kid was an 11-year-old kid, son of the superintendent of the golf course. Very rarely wore shoes. If he did, they were sandals. He would never wear like you know real shoes. And he pretty much putted multiple hours a day. And his job was basically just putt against members and guys like me and make money. So he wasn't really that good at golf because he had no interest in playing golf. He just wanted to take money off you. So he was such a natural putter. He would kind of step into it, take one quick look, and kind of hit the putt and walk towards the hole just to pull the ball out of the hole. He never held his finish, never kept his eyes down, never waited for the jingle of the ball in the hole. He never had a putting lesson, but he was a better putter than me, and I was a pretty decent putter. And he knew the greens backwards and forwards because all he did was putt and he knew where every ball was rolling off every single imperfection of the green. It was so incredible to watch. And it fundamentally changed uh, and got the ball rolling in terms of what I what I believe my teaching model would be was that once the skill is reasonable or that once the biomechanical action is decent and you have a pattern that can kind of repeat, we don't need to make it look conventional. We just need to add a lot of skill training on top of it. And so what did this guy do? I mean, he trained all the skill aspects you need to. He did a lot of variability. Every putt was different. Number two, he competed all the time. He was always playing pressure putting. And if you want to be a, a pressure putter and be a great putter, like spend more time gambling and playing for money and trying to, uh, trying to care on each putt and you'll get so much better. Doing block practice drills where you're trying to perfect your stroke from four feet give me break. It's a it's a near waste of time.
1: And so to expound on that a little bit more, it seems like what you're saying right there isn't just localized to putting. It's part of your philosophy as the whole is teaching, which is once the biomechanics gets functional, once we develop good patterns with our full swing, with every part of our game in, those, in that regard, we're spending less time working on block practice and more time working on random Practice or variable practices, some people call it.
0: Yeah, for sure, and that's where the the literature and how I would say most people practices is, is so far off. Right, so many people are chasing kind of like short term practice effects, and they they really want to build confidence on the range. They're trying to hit the same club at the same target to feel a little better, which is which is faulty from the standpoint of like they'll see you, you you're hitting you know ten three irons in a row or. Or fifty-three irons in a row, and you you're starting to catch about eighty percent solid. Does that mean you can hit a three iron on the course in competition? No, it's like way too hard a club for you. You shouldn't be using three iron. Now, if I have you go three iron, sand wedge, seven iron. Ooh, now we're going to draw an eight iron to a left pin, and we we put you in the context of different shots. Now let's see how you perform. That's who you are, way more than how you hit you know block shot practice on the range. So you 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 run the risk of a inflating your own kind of self-assessment of your ability when you do too much block practice and then b you're kind of in the middle of what i'd call the the skill the skill mechanics kind of paradigm and and training in the middle is often like the least efficient way to train like i'd rather have you break down the skill and really do mechanics hitting foam balls or i'd rather have you simulate gameplay where you're actually uh, hitting different shots competing and training on the, on the, on the range. So like one of, one of the staples of what I say is like on the range, b- when you're preparing for a tournament a few days before, we're going to switch clubs, almost every shot. We're going to switch targets almost every shot. Um, so one of the kids I coach, Caleb Van Arrigan, who's an, on an absolute heater. He won the, the state open by nine, the state am by 12 in Minnesota. And then he won a college tournament by 16 shots yesterday. He's going to play on tour. He's so talented, but, when I try to do video of him on the range, it's almost annoying because he almost never hits the same shot. So I'm like, all right, I set up my camera, I get ready. Oh, and then he's four degrees inside out and he's hitting a hard draw. Ah, next one's a hard fate. And I know there's so many people that advocate for block practice, but I have this stat, which is really, really, I think interesting. Dwight Howard, when he's in the gym, unguarded, is something like an 84% free throw shooter. This is you know, off the Lakers board early in his career. In games, he's around 46%. Okay, so does Dwight Howard need to sh- shoot more free throws in the gym? Is that going to help him be better at golf or better at shooting free throws? No. So block practice is super misleading. It doesn't transfer as much as people think it does. And you need to use it very wisely, mostly when you're working mechanics.
1: So to clarify even... Further. So if I, I'm going out to the range, I'm hitting seven irons over and over. It sounds like more so what people are doing in that is they're ch- one, they're chasing a feeling. And that's something that, as opposed to working on getting better. And two, uh, if I'm trying to do the, let's say I'm not working on biomechanics and I'm going out to the range and doing that, as as I said right there, I really should be focusing more on hitting different types of shots, hitting different types of clubs. What does good variable practice look like not just by working in approach but working in all all or any other facets of the game is does that mean does good random practice or variable practice mean shots on the range for 45 minutes and then 15 on the putting green xyz or does it mean 15 here 15 there what does that look like
0: yeah i think there's there's a couple of elements one would be a little bit of space learning or interleaving where it feels like you're you're doing something for a little while and then you're doing something different resetting so going from the range to the putting green and range and back to the putting green is better than doing half an hour of each. Like if they're close by, you should get good at switching back and forth because that is what we're trying to do. The other is just the representative design of what we're trying to learn from skill standpoint. So, you know, there's this big debate in the golf, like, should you hit your stock shot most of the time or should you learn to curve it? Well, there are certain shots in a round of golf that have an advantage to curve it, particularly with irons. And I think most pros would agree with this And the old adage is, hit the shot you know you can hit under the gun. But if you don't practice some different shots, you'll never know if you can get good at these. Like this kid, Caleb, that I coach, like when the shot calls for it, he will do it. One thing that's fundamental to my teaching philosophy is from ages about 12 to 17, 18, I want them to be very good at working the ball both ways. Because... If they're good at it during this kind of developmental phase, they're never going to be that bad of it at, when they're an adult. And they'll always kind of have the skills to fix their swing faster. So it's not just that they can hit the shot they're That's called upon on the golf course. They're also really good at remedying their swing when it gets off because they understand path and face. It means less lessons for me, which is great. I want them to only see me when they need me. And I want them to figure their stuff out on their own. And then, and then B again, they're able to hit the shot when they need to. So if you don't practice that way, you'll never know if you have those shots. Would Tiger be Tiger if he'd never worked the way he did at curving when he was young? Probably not. So I'm looking for what I call representative design, meaning a variety of shots that you encounter on the golf course. Like a good sample of how I'll train my kids would be like, we're going to switch targets to maybe three or four different targets. And I often pick targets that are not, uh, that are not flags. I don't want people aiming at flags because you shouldn't be doing that on the golf course. I don't mind if they aim 10 feet right of a flag or six feet left of the flag. That's fine because that's how golf should be played, right? Learn how to represent your practice about how you play. But we're going to do three different targets. I'm not going to care about the distance of them. I might pick a water tower in the distance. I might pick something that's 80 yards away because it's way more about the line than it is the distance you're hitting a shot. You know the number you're trying to create in your head. And then what we're going to do is create shots that are similar to what we do in the golf course. So let's say we do a seven iron full. Then the next shot, we're going to do a seven iron. That's a wind shot, which should be a kind of a stock shot where you decide you want to play a little back, maybe three quarter of the swing a little bit, maybe hit a little draw into the wind. You have to have a go to wind shot. And then the next one would be back to normal shot. And then the next one's going to be a curve. And then I go normal. Then I go wind. Then I go normal. Then I go curve. So I'm doing about every other shot's a little bit special. Every other shot's kind of normal. So that's a good example of like a representative design practice that would be very, very helpful for most competitive players to kind of implement in the practice.
1: That is helpful for us and helpful for our listeners. And we'll wrap up here in a second. But to go full circle on something... Uh, that we've talked about if I were someone who only listened to the first 20 or 30 minutes of the podcast and I didn't make it to this point, I might inaccurately characterize you and say, Hey, this guy's Mr. Technical. He's super technical. All he cares about are biomechanics and technique. And obviously that's a misrepresentation, but when it comes to playing tournament golf, we've talked about, Hey, when it, in practice or in certain areas, internal cues are better than external cues. If you're talking with a student and they're going to go play in a tournament and let's say our biomechanics are pretty cleaned up or we're not, we're not completely unfunctional, what sort of swing thoughts or anything of that nature or triggers are you advising them to have, if any, and what does that process look like for you? Because as you've said, the point is to play the best golf possible in the tournament.
0: Yeah, I would say if you haven't practiced the thought effectively for at least 10 or 20 hours, you have no business using it. You can't you can't come with a swing thought that you thought of Tuesday and use it on Friday. I don't care if you've drilled it, you know, pretty hard. Like you need to go play golf and uh there's two things. There's golf and there's golf swing. Play golf on the golf course, play golf swing when you're breaking down mechanics. So, choose before you set step put a teen a peg in the ground, like what you're gonna think about that day. if you can't write it on the back of the hand and you're too embarrassed at how much space it would take, like it doesn't belong in your head, you know, So it needs to be simple because it doesn't work when it's complex. Keep it really simple. The more you can kind of honor your environment and be out there, kind of being in the moment, seeing shots hitting the golf ball where it needs to go. And uh, you don't need to be crazy specific about targets like that. That's a little bit of BS too. Like You can be general like, Hey, let's bang it down the right side of the fairway. There's something freeing about actually picking slightly larger targets for a lot of golfers, but be confident in your swing. And and I would say uh, I'm a big fan of finding a mental mantra or that's part of your pre-shot routine. Like, you know, see it, feel it, trust it and just ride with simple swing thoughts. Because we know when you have a mantra in your head, a mantra is a good way to make sure that you have positive stuff in your brain versus negative, and it keeps other thoughts out. So I like simple mantras, and they can be something you can use in different parts of the game. Driver might be different than putting, but simple stuff that you can rely on over and over. And the last thing would be, um, you know, just make sure that you kind of are, are process focused. Be like at the end of the day, like, did you? I, I love the mental golf scorecard. Did you commit to each shot? Did you prepare for each shot? Right. you do those 2 feel good about how you you did today.
1: Well, I think – I know you uh, made Cooper happy because Cooper loves mantras, uh, and that's right up his alley. And it's good for our listeners to hear that because it's been a while since we've talked about having a mantra like that in your head. The last question we ask every guest is the same, and for you it's going to be two parts. So, one, if you go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself just one thing, what would that one thing be? And two, if you could tell a junior golfer just one thing, what would that one thing be?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm probably, uh, I, I at age 13 could have used a very hard-ass technical coach that wanted me to use video and just dial my swing in because it would have taken me a year or two to develop a great golf swing. I didn't I didn't know that at the time. So I played with a four-degree upright golf swing and could curve it. I was a, a good player, but only because I could get the ball in the hole. It was not because I was a good driver of the ball. I was terrible. So that's what I needed. I need technical refinement. But, I think it really depends on the advice I would give every any kid depends on like how good is your swing if your swing is good, we need to do skill development. If it's not, we need to do some technical development and the only way to know that is to get a good coach so form that relationship when you're young. get a good coach make sure you're you're hunting them down and 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 the last thing I would say is like the the days of you know having to do it in person, they're going away like I coach so many juniors internationally now online and you can be super effective i think we're still finding ways to do really good skill practice through online but now i'm, I'm developing an app and i know others have too but it basically details how to do skill practice based on principles of uh, motor learning and variable practice and you want a coach that can help coach both the technical and uh, kind of the skill side of it so the mechanics and skill are really key and uh develop that relationship and trust your coach.
1: As a postscript to that question, how do you figure out who a good coach is or what makes a good coach?
0: I think the the number of, you know, good players that that they coach is usually a good indicator, you know, record of success for the players. I I also like maybe would say if they're getting good players from point a to point b over a long period of time if they've had students from age five till 20 that's an indicator that they can take them to the next level and they're they're a kind of a versatile coach right whereas if you know they're just picking up tour players and the tour players come and go like maybe the name is there but maybe they haven't really developed talent you know like there's a little bit of that as well but i think there's so many good coaches out there you just have to search and find somebody that kind of fits that pattern and with the online thing, like you can try it really easily. Like you can try these guys and, and for a reasonable amount of money that you don't have to travel, you can have them give it, give you an opinion of your swing and, and dial it in and find somebody that, that works for you.
1: Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us. Where can people find you on social media, find your website, find the Ripstick and find any other new products that you're going to roll out?
0: Sure. So you can go to ripstick.com, R-Y-P, ripstick.com. And then on social media. I'm Dr. Luke Benoit. So, uh, do a bunch on there and, uh, you know, try to keep it interesting. You, you'll definitely see some of my, uh, kind of like philosophy is through my social media on Instagram. And, um, I'm always happy to, uh, to take on, you know, new students that want to, want to be challenged
1: I'm here to follow Luke on social media and check out the Ripstick, And then if you're listening to us on Apple podcasts or Spotify, please subscribe and leave a rating. And if you're listening on YouTube, please like subscribe. This helps more people learn about us and more people learn how to play better tournament golf. And if you're trying to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at the tournament code and on Twitter at tournament code. As always, we appreciate you taking the time to join us and dive in deeper to what it takes to play elite tournament golf.